Good evening, folks. It's good to hear you sing. Let me uh, open us in, in a word of prayer, our time of proclamation. We pray with me. Father, we thank you for the peace and the hope and the love that comes from your Spirit who dwells in us. We pray that we as your people would continually show the fruit of new hearts and lives that have been filled with your Spirit. And so, Lord, I pray that tonight that you would help us to make progress in this and that we would leave here with more peace and more hope and more joy and with a new understanding and appreciation for Christ and the sacrificial work that he's accomplished on the cross. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, Christians love crosses. We have cross necklaces, cross rings, cross t-shirts. Some even have cross tattoos. We put crosses on our cars. We put crosses on our walls. At Trinity, we even have a cross-shaped flower bed, which should be blooming soon. We have replicas of the cross in the sanctuary in here, and we've got one that normally lights up with neon light behind me, right? And we know the cross is important, but why? What exactly was it that Jesus was doing on the cross? If you were to strike up a conversation with your one, and you asked a question similar to what Mark asked, and you said something about the cross, what would, what would you say? What exactly was Jesus doing on the cross? What did he accomplish? Do you know how you would answer that question? You might say, well, Jesus died to show us how much he loved the world. Or, some might say, Jesus died as an example for us, or, or to inspire us to obey him and live for him. Or you might say, as some have, that Jesus died to ransom us or buy us back from Satan. Perhaps you might say Jesus died to satisfy the wrath that God has for sin by giving him the honor that he is due, that was taken from him. But each one of these reasons would be wrong. It would be, at best incomplete, mostly wrong. They may have an element of truth, but they don't fully answer the question, why did Jesus have to die? We've been answering and looking at some of the big themes of the Bible in an effort to broaden and deepen our understanding of what God has revealed to us, right? We've recognized that the Bible is a, it's a record of God's revelation to mankind, and it's a big book, right? It, it, it is a book that historically unfolded over hundreds and hundreds of years. It's got dozens of organic themes. What I mean by that, it's themes that grow like a tree, Right, a theme may start small uh, as like a seed, but then over time gradually grows into a sapling and then a tree, and then eventually it produces apples. It's organic. And we don't want to only study the apple or only study the sapling, but we want to at times have the whole development of a theme in view. We could think of it like a flip book. Do you remember flip books? Right? They were in Cracker Jack boxes. 
sometimes, right? It's those small little books that had dozens of pages, sometimes with stick figures or, or whatever. And, and the, the figures would gradually differ just a little bit from one page to the next. They'd either change uh, the shape of the body or they would add more you know, texture to, to a picture. And then when the pages are flipped rapidly, you know, thumbed through like this, it, it comes to life, right? It's animated. It, it, it grows. And at the end, you end up with a full drawing. Maybe that's how we could think of what we're doing. We're studying the Bible as if it were a flip book, right? Seeing the movement and the progression. Last week, I tried to tell the story of the Bible through the lens of love. And the week before, through the lens of creation. And tonight, I would like to tell the story through the lens of sacrifice. Of sacrifice. Now, you may not be surprised to learn that the story of sacrifice, like the others, begins at creation. But in Eden, it's a little different, right? Because in Eden, sacrifice did not involve any death, did it? Sacrifice begins, I believe, as worship. By Adam and Eve, who live lives of worship before the Lord, obeying His commands and carrying out His mandates. But then all of that, of course, changes when sin enters into the world. Perhaps the main way we're introduced to the idea of sacrifice is in the story of Cain and Abel, there in Genesis chapter 4. Interestingly enough, the sacrifice is designated as an offering. There's lots of words that pick up in both Hebrew and Greek, lots of different words that pick up on the idea of sacrifice. An offering is one of them, and that's the word that appears in in Genesis chapter 4. But clearly the idea is that of sacrifice, because we know Abel's offering was an animal. And to offer an animal, that animal, especially if you offer parts of an animal, that animal involves uh, a death. Genesis chapter 4 verse 3 reads like this, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. And the text doesn't give us a a whole lot of information for why they were inclined to bring an offering to the Lord. God didn't seem to command it or, uh, and there's certainly no mention of sin or blood. And so it seems that the idea is that offering or sacrifice is connected with thanksgiving. Right? It's, it's the idea of giving tribute to a king. It's as if to say, we acknowledge that God is king. And we submit to him as Lord. It, it's, it's like saying, in this offering, I'm saying, uh, I'm offering this to God because I recognize that everything is God's. He made it. And everything is God's anyways. And I want to recognize that. But of course, this is where Cain went wrong, isn't it? Even though he dutifully gave his offering, God did not regard it as he did Abel's. Not because Cain offered kale and Brussels sprouts, which I imagine as I read the text. And not because God wanted meat. The problem as the murder that he quickly committed, the problem was Cain's heart. Cain's heart. It wasn't the offering itself. It's never the offering itself that God was interested in. It was the heart of the worshipers. 
And we learn you can't fake thanksgiving to God and you can't fake worship. But then we come to the story of Noah. Noah has an instance of sacrifice that we see there in Genesis chapter 8. You can flip there if you want to try to keep up. But Noah offers, again, a sacrifice of thanksgiving after the flood. Again, the purpose of the sacrifice was thanksgiving. But this time, it came after a great act of salvation. And what's most important in this story is that we learn that some sacrifices actually have the power to impact God and can actually affect his attitude toward us. Listen. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Some sacrifices change God's attitude. Interesting. The pattern of sacrifice becomes more intense with the story of Abraham, particularly in Genesis chapter 15 where God confirms his covenant with Abraham. It's a dramatic story that I want to encourage you to listen carefully to because God had recently made some incredible promises to Abraham or to Abraham who whose wife was barren. And the text tells us that Abraham believed, but he struggled to believe. And so he asked, how will I know? So God told him there in Genesis 15 to bring five animals to him. A heifer, a a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And, And what took place next was stunning. Abraham, at the instruction of the Lord, cut most of the animals in half and laid them on opposite sides, the halves on opposite sides of one another. And God's presence came down in a smoking pot and in a flaming torch. And the text communicates to us that God himself passed in between the carcasses of these animals. And the effect is is that God is saying something like this. If I don't keep my covenant, if I don't uphold, you want to know if I'm going to keep my covenant, Abraham? Here's how you know. If I don't keep my end of the covenant, let what happened to these animals happen to me. God is saying you can cut him in half if he wouldn't be faithful. God was calling down a curse on himself. Because covenants always have an element of curse in the Bible. If he wasn't faithful. If he didn't keep his covenant, God himself would be broken. We often see sacrifice connected with covenants. All the great covenants seem to have sacrifices. And and that's because covenants are so serious that, that they involve death. They are in fact only broken in death. And the penalty of unfaithfulness is death. And this picture in Genesis 15, this sacrifice made that very palpable. Interestingly enough, Abraham didn't pass through the animals. But his time of testing would come. In Genesis chapter 22, when God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there. What a bizarre thing. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. God was testing 
Abraham's heart. He was testing to see if Abraham had this attitude of everything is God's. He was testing to see if he had the heart of a worshiper, if he really believed God's covenant. And as horrifying as this scenario is, I mean, this, (laughs) this is a horrifying scenario to any sensibilities. It is a stern reminder to us. All of creation, every living thing is God's. It was made by God, and God can take it back whenever he wants, including life. It's a truth that is baked into the very notion of sacrifice. Everything is God's. And as you probably know, Abraham obeyed until at the very last moment, God provided a substitute, a ram. And it's in this image that some critical truths begin to emerge that are new for the reader of the Bible, right? We're only in Genesis 22. First of all, we learn that God is willing to accept a substitute. He's willing to accept a substitute for a life that he has every single right to claim. We also see that God is willing to provide the substitute himself. It's interesting. Throughout the rest of Genesis, the idea of sacrifice isn't isn't a major part of the narrative. It kind of fades into the background. There are no major developments until we come to Exodus. Exodus begins with slavery and quickly moves to the promise of this grand deliverance. And God makes it clear that he has a purpose for his planned salvation. Exodus 7 verse 16 says... It's one of numerous accounts where, where God says, let my people, this is probably the people saying, let my people go that they may serve or make sacrifices to me in the wilderness. Remember, it's a repeated theme. God demonstrates his power through mighty plagues of judgment against the Egyptians until the 10th plague. God warns that he will require and take By way of death, the lives of all the firstborn in Egypt. It's particularly the firstborn. It's also something he would do uh, requiring Israel to consecrate the firstborn later in the book of Exodus. There's something about the first son. But thankfully, God makes provision for his people. Provision to escape his judgment. The provision is that if God's people kill a lamb, a lamb that is without defect, and if they smear its blood over their homes, then God will see, he will see the blood, and he will pass over them in judgment. Such a big deal, God goes on to establish a Passover meal to remember the event because God doesn't want his people to forget the blood. He doesn't want them to forget that time that he passed over them in judgment. And so God saves his people with a mighty arm and he takes them out into the wilderness and there he, he makes a new covenant with them. And we learn what God expects of his people. He expects them to be devoted to them, to him. And here, even now, a new pattern emerges. Listen carefully. That those who are spared by a sacrifice, those who are spared by a substitute, become gods. 
He owns them. They're set apart for God, bought by God, consecrated for God. And as the story continues, we see some sacrifices here and there, especially when the tabernacle, how God dwells among his people, especially when that is erected. But we see a whole lot of sin. I mean, a whole lot of sin. And when you turn the page from Exodus to Leviticus, things are really cranked up a notch. It is really hard to summarize how much sacrifice is in Leviticus, right? But we basically see an entire book devoted to the idea of sacrifice. There are sacrifices of all kinds. Fellowship offerings, burnt offerings, whole burnt offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings. God quite literally establishes a whole entire sacrificial system. And if I had to have to pick a few, so let me just highlight a few patterns that emerge from this system. Number one, God only accepts clean animals. Spotted animals, blind animals, lame animals are not eligible. And not only that, but those who offer sacrifices, they themselves must also be clean. There's a ceremonial cleanliness, but there's also a spiritual cleanliness that's required. God's people are often instructed to put away their idols first. Before you make a sacrifice to God, stop worshiping the false gods. Think the golden calf. But even Jacob fell into this. God commanded Jacob in uh, Genesis 35 to go make a sacrifice. But he said, first put away all your idols. This is God's guy. Jacob, put away your idols. The God who is worshipped and sacrificed is a jealous God. And he will not share his glory. He demands exclusive worship. A second principle is that we see this principle of substitution intensified and further developed. Really in more ways than I can mention, but let me mention one big one. We we learn that there's a possible transfer of sin. Leviticus 1 verse 4 says, He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, an animal, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. The idea is that the worshiper, the sacrificer, is to lay his hand on the head of the animal that is about to die. And what he's doing, he's identifying with the animal's plight. It's as if he is to say, what is about to happen to this animal should happen to me. This death is for me. There's a major emphasis on the lifeblood and blood being spilt because blood has to be spilt for sin to be covered. A third major pattern we see is the establishment of the priesthood in the temple. The idea is that there is so much sin and there are so many sacrifices, at this point they're daily, that God requires a mediator. One who is clean to stand in between human nature and the holy God. But you you know, the priests themselves, they were so sinful. Sometimes they were more sinful than the people. And not only did they have to make sacrifices for the people, but they had to make sacrifices for themselves. Over and over and over and over again. And it brings up this pesky other problem. Is the priests kept dying. Because they were sinful. Another pattern is another one that stands out. Is the idea of the day of atonement. 
which is really the high point, the pinnacle of, of the sacrificial system and activity where once a year the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwelt, and in this grand act sprinkle blood, the blood of a sacrifice on the mercy seat, which is the symbolic throne of God, and, and do it for his sins as a sinful priest and for the sins of God's holy people. And he had to do this regularly. This particular one he did annually, but all the sacrifices were daily, weekly, and even monthly. And then the story of sacrifice kind of stalls here. Millions and millions and millions of sacrifices are being made. Blood everywhere. Sin everywhere. Sin continues, so sacrifice continues, but death continues. On and on and on we go. Saviors are risen up, but still the people sin. Judgment comes, still the people sin. The same sacrifices are repeated over and over. It appears that sacrifice does not, it does not change people. It, it doesn't get rid of sin. Even once the temple is rebuilt after the exile, the Holy of Holies, as we heard last week, it was empty. In Malachi, in Malachi chapter 1, the last book of the Old Testament, contains these chilling words. Listen as I read. Oh, God says, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from, the, for, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And every place incense will be offered up to my name in a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. That's how the Old Testament ends. And then years, hundreds of years of prophetic silence. It seems like God is on the brink of doing something great. But he's frustrated with his people and sick of their sacrifices. It's clear, hopefully you heard the text say, God is not willing to sacrifice. He's not willing to accept sacrifices from the hands of his people. Their hands are dirty. So the question, the question that hangs over the Old Testament is who can provide an acceptable sacrifice for sin? And so just think of the great joy. John chapter 1 where we read, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No, God still will not accept sacrifices from the hands of sinners. So he decides to take matters into his own hands and he himself will provide the sacrifice. And it turns out that this was God's plan all along. The gospel tells, the gospels tell us how the Son of God, his firstborn, took on flesh and offered up his life as a sacrifice. 
as a substitute for his people. And as we read on, as we read through the Gospels, and as we read through the New Testament, we realize that Jesus, listen carefully, Jesus fulfilled every single one of the Old Testament sacrifices. Every single one. I'm going to give you a sampling, right? We've already heard Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We also learn that his blood is actually effective, not like the blood of bulls and goats, but it is effective to take away sin. First Peter 1, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus also, he fulfilled the day of atonement through the, uh, through the spilling of his blood. For Hebrews 9 says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer, if they sanctify for purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, to purify our conscience, from dead works to serve a living God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, at the Lord's Supper, Paul says that Christ is our Passover lamb. In 2 Corinthians 5, we learn that he is the effective offering for sin. For our sake, he who knew no sin became sin. That we might become the righteousness of God. And I could go on and on and on, but let me just highlight one more. That Jesus is the propitiation for our sin. Romans 3 is one of several places where we hear about this. Where God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood. To be received by faith. To show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. When we read that Jesus is the propitiation, that means that Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. The blood of bulls and goats is not sufficient, but the blood of Christ is better. There's something better about Christ. And how do we know that God was satisfied? Because he rose Jesus back from the dead, proving that he was satisfied, proving that for all who are in Christ, who are a part of his body, who join to him, who fellowship in his sufferings, that we are safe. We are as safe as Christ is from the wrath of God. So because of this, Jesus ascended into heaven because that's the best place for him. But when Christ, Hebrews 10 says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Friends, this is why Revelation tells us there will be no temple in heaven. Not as we knew it, because there is no sacrifice needed to atone for sin. This is a story of sacrifice. One thing I want you to notice as we consider what do we learn from this? What do we take from this? So I want you to notice how the pattern intensified. Could you hear it? The pattern of sacrifice intensified as we went along. It began with Thanksgiving, a simple act of worship. 
acknowledging lordship and active devotion. And then the ideas of substitution and, and divine appeasement were entered in. And then the Passover and the role of the firstborn, the spotless lamb onto, uh, onto the atonement for sin and all the Levitical sacrifices. And then it all explodes in a massive climax where Jesus Christ fulfills every single dimension of the sacrificial system. What does that tell us? It's, I really should have to preach all of Hebrews tonight. But a big part of Hebrews is telling us that all of those parts, they were intended to point us to Christ. They were shadows. They were a type. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is a better sacrifice. But how much more powerful is it? How much more helpful is the telling of the whole story to help you feel to feel the weight of this glory. Jesus is better. We learn a great deal about the atonement from this story. Far more than we can cover in an overview sermon like this. But one thing that stands out is that ultimately, humanity's problem is not simply that we are going to die It's not simply that we get sick. It's certainly not social ills. It's definitely not that we need more love or more self-esteem. Our ultimate problem is that sin has triggered a massive atomic bomb of God's wrath. We are guilty. And God is justly angry with us. We don't need more love. We certainly don't need more comfortable lives. We need an escape. We need a way to escape God's wrath. And there's no sacrifice that could possibly be offered up by human hands that isn't defiled. The life of another, an animal, certainly not. You're... Efforts of good works? Certainly not. Your acts of devotion? No way. And this is where the story gets so interesting. And we could go back and and think about it from lots of different dimensions, but I want to focus on one tonight. I want you to think back with me to to the story and the very odd events of Genesis 15 when God confirmed his covenant to Abraham by passing through the butchered animals of sacrifice. God was saying then in the Abrahamic covenant that that if he failed to live up to his side of the covenant, the divine side, then he would bear the curse of that sin. He would bear the punishment of the covenant. Of course, God was faithful. God's always faithful. He's faithful in the Abrahamic covenant and he's been faithful in the covenant with Israel. God's always faithful. He'll always be faithful. The problem is humans. The problem is humanity. The problem has always been humanity. We just can't stop sinning. Even when God approaches us and enters into a relationship with us through covenant like he did with Israel, they just couldn't stop sinning. He was on the mountain. The mountain was quaking and they were worshiping idols in an orgy. What is it about the human heart? What is it about the heart of stone that cannot love God? The problem is humanity. 
And so we're under the curse of the law for breaking our side of the covenant with God. Each one of us is under the punishment of death for failing to obey. This is why there are all the curses listed in the Pentateuch about what happens to Israel if they fail to keep his covenant. Because failure to keep covenant with God leads to curse. And just like Adam, and just like Israel, and just like David, we're in that long line of failures. But the promise of the prophets brings new hope. It brings the promise of a new covenant. Though it's a covenant between God and man, it is decidedly, unlike some of the others, it is unconditional. It is unconditional in this way. God says in Exodus 36, I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And then he says this, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and cause you to be careful to obey my rules. In other words, God says, I got a new plan and I will guarantee obedience. He also says he will forgive their sins. Well, how in the world is that going to happen? How in the world is he going to get them to obey? Like, where is this new heart going to come from? And how in the world is he going to grant the forgiveness of sins? How can he accomplish this? What about the guilt of sin? What about the debt of wrath? Okay, sure, maybe a new heart would solve the obedience problem, but what about all the guilt? Enter Jesus Christ. In the Abrahamic covenant, God walked between those animals, saying that God himself would die if the covenant was broken. And then in the new covenant, in that new era, Jesus Christ, who is God, became man. And on the cross, it is as if the God-man walks through the animals taking on the full curse of a broken covenant with God. And so we see an innocent God, a innocent God who is keeping covenant, we see him bearing the guilt of man by becoming man in order to satisfy the righteousness of God. Salvation is all God. Do you see it? My dear friends, so much more could be said on this, but let us be sure to see this. Jesus Christ came to die as a substitute for sin. He was spotless, clean, without moral defect, and his lifeblood was spilt so that those who place their faith in Christ My sins, the sins that I've committed, the sins that I've tried not to commit and I still commit can be transferred to the head of Jesus Christ. Just as the worshiper would transfer her sins by placing her head on the head of a goat, so too may we transfer our sins to the head of Christ. This is achieved through faith. Through faith in Jesus Christ, because God does all the work, we are left only with faith. And when Jesus died as a substitute, 
He propitiated. He satisfied God's wrath. And so friend, Christian sinner, do you know what that means for you? No wrath remains. No wrath remains for your anger problem. No wrath remains for your purity problem. No wrath remains for that past failure. No wrath remains for tomorrow's failure. When Jesus paid for your sin, he satisfied the wrath of God. So there's none left. God is as happy with you as he is with Jesus. What kind of God is this? No sin remains. Like Noah's sacrifice, the sacrificial death of Christ is a sweet aroma to the Lord that changes his attitude about you. And in fact, it changes your eternal destination. Our sins are atoned. The word there has connotations of covering. They're covered. Enabling us to have right relationship with God, to go back into communion with Him, which means... No guilt remains. So sacrifices, what do we do with those? They're no longer needed. Hebrews 9.26 has got to be one of the most glorious verses in the Bible. Where it says, Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. By the sacrifice of himself. And so only one sacrifice remains, friends. It's not a sacrifice for sin, but it's a sacrifice of praise. And so Paul urges like this So I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, with the mercies of God now in view, present your bodies. As a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Our sacrifice now is spiritual. Just like at the beginning when Adam and Eve lived in obedience to God, perhaps even Cain and Abel recognized this, they lived in accordance with all that I have is God's and so I will live for him. In fact, my very life is God's. For it was bought with a price. The precious blood of Jesus Christ. So now, we joyfully, gladly, willingly offer back our bodies and our lives to Christ. Not to pay for sin. Not to gain approval. Not to up your ante with God. But as a tribute to say, You are my Lord and my Savior. You are my Lord and my Savior, so I am doubly yours. That is the story of sacrifice. May Jesus get all the credit he is due. Father, we pray that tonight, that you would tear down in us the love of other idols who have done nothing for us. They've only stolen and taken. Whereas you've laid down your very life. Creating us new love for you, O oh God. Love that breaks the appeal of sin. 
and love that teaches us to lay down our lives in humble sacrifice for you. Not in what we say or sing in a service, but in how we live in our communities. Help us with this. May Christ receive the glory that he deserves from his church. We ask this in his name. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.